This is Atolio Conversations. I'm Luke Alley. On today's episode, our co-founder Mark Matta talks with Greg Tichetti, CIO of State Auto Insurance. Early in his career, Greg worked on the administrative and operational sides of several insurance companies, and in 2011, he co-founded his own insurance company, focused on small to mid-sized businesses. In 2015, he carried his experiences into becoming CIO at State Auto Insurance as part of a major digital transformation initiative. And so, Greg shares with Mark his story, what he learned from being a co-founder, which technologies he's most excited about these days, what advice he would give to fellow CIOs, and more. And with that, please enjoy Mark's conversation with Greg Tachetti. Greg, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Mark. It's great to see you. I think it, be, it makes the most sense, if you don't mind, Greg, kind of just giving us all a little bit more background on you. You have an interesting mm-hmm. career, and we talked about this last time we chatted uh, a couple months back, but being obviously in the insurance industry for a long time, but pivoting from you know different uh, administrative roles into starting your own company and then going back to become a CIO. So it'd be great to kind of just hear like how it all got started and what opted you to go down the path of ultimately starting your own firm a few years back? I am happy to kind of give you a quick thumbnail. Uh, I started my career out of uh, when I graduated from University of Maryland. Uh, uh, I, I, for a long t- part of my life, I wanted to was planning to fly for the Navy, and that was my uh, where I was heading. And then uh, my eyes went bad, so I gave up my scholarship and. Uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do the rest of my life and uh, was pretty sure it was going to be racing sailboats for a while, but that doesn't pay so good. So uh, a good family friend, after haranguing me for a year, got me to agree to fill out an application for GEICO. And uh, that kind of set a whole lot of things in train. Uh, uh, I spent 10 years at GEICO, seven years of that. I uh, was in the, the motorcycle division, which uh, was still a big, a small part of a big company. but. Uh, it was really a great experience for me because you got to wear a lot of different hats and get exposure to all different elements to the industry that you normally probably wouldn't. And, you know, if you were more segmented into uh, a specific state or, or product element of, of uh, auto. Uh, so that was a fun experience. Uh, my last three years were up in New York uh, running uh, operations uh, for, for at the time it was about a two and a half billion dollar region uh, for, for Geico. I think, I think they've more than doubled that uh, in the 20 years since I left. Um, from there, I went out to Safeco in Seattle as part of a new leadership team that was turning around uh, that organization. And that's, that gave me a lot of experience with uh, uh, a really dynamic and uh, stressful environment. You know, when you're trying to you know bring a, uh, a, an insurance company that's not healthy back to health, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, I also got a lot of experience uh, all over the country working with independent agents and then got to really respect their role in the, uh, uh, the distribution chain and, and, and you know, a lot of relationships they have with their customers. Um, I ran underwriting there, so that, you know, it gave me a lot of experience, uh, both in a home product line that I did not have earlier. And uh, it was all personal lines at that time. And, uh, um, 
you know, it was a, it was a terrific experience. Yeah, I went out there in 01 and uh, went back to school uh, in 04 at University of Washington and got my uh, MBA. And uh, that really scratched something in me that I didn't know was there uh, about wanting to try something more entrepreneurial. Uh, but before I did that, uh, I went to Fireman's Fund as a chief administrative officer and had a, a whole portfolio of things. Fireman's Fund was owned by Allianz, a big German uh, company. They're kind of the state farm of Germany, but they had operations all over. So I got a lot of international experience working there and uh, ultimately left uh, Fireman's Fund to do the, the startup that we uh, you were asking about at the beginning. And uh, that was a real fun experience. Uh, our uh, our, our CEO at, Safe, at Safeco, Mike McGavick, had gone to uh, XL Capital, which uh, recently was purchased by OXA. And he asked, uh, you know, hey, I, I've got a uh, two big business lines and, and both of them kind of have lumpy results. I'd love it if we could put together a startup that they would fund for um, uh, high frequency, low severity, like an auto product line. And uh, we started doing a bunch of uh, primary research, and, and um, as, as I think you know, you're seeing with a lot of you know startups in the, the auto space, it's a, it's a brutal environment, and, and there's a lot of uh, price efficiencies to scale that uh, make it really hard in any kind of reasonable window, you know, less than ten years to to have a growing and profitable uh, uh, auto company. That's still proving to be the case. So we, we recommended and pitched a plan to build a uh, direct to small commercial startup, uh, basically create a, an insurance company out of whole cloth. Uh, the, the capital structure was an MGA that uh, leveraged the uh, underwriting paper of, uh, of another carrier. The idea at the time was of BXL. Um, they, for internal reasons, uh, chose not to invest and under our agreement, uh, we were able to go shop the plan. And within a month, I'll say, we were deep into conversations with American Family. So uh, they they financed the startup. I think the first year was uh, $17 million. We kind of kicked it off in February of uh, 2013 and uh, got, was able to get a lot of great talent from relationships that we built over the years to, to take a risk and, and come to the startup. And really just uh, from a you know, blank piece of paper that became a business plan to uh, creating a business was uh, just a terrific uh, experience and a lot of fun. Uh, we went live in October of 13. And I think four or five months later, we had uh, the BOP product uh, out in all 51 markets, you know, including DC. And uh, we're starting to build out the uh, the commercial auto and then that was going to be followed by the workers comp. So it was a uh, a terrific experience, you know, and, and for me, the really interesting thing was if you think about like in my career, you know, you work in big companies and you have HR and you have all you know, legal and you have all these different elements that you rely on that as a startup, you got to think differently about that whole equation. You know, you can't just, you know, have a, 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 a ton of people. So um, being able to really think more creatively about what your value levers are and, and how you can, in effect, rent resources versus, uh, uh, you know, having the, the dollars, you know, for people capital really targeted to the, the areas that were going to make a big difference. And, and that was, to me, a fascinating experience and 
how to both think differently and creatively, but how to really run an efficient operation. And uh, brought a lot of that to my current role where I'm the chief strategy and information officer for State Auto. I came here uh, six years ago with, again, a whole new leadership team to turn around uh, State Auto that had kind of 10 years of uh, shrinking policyholder counts and uh, profitability issues. And um, was the architect really of the uh, the digital strategy transformation and uh, in, in really record time, we put 14 statutory lines on a greenfielded new platform, uh, heavily using uh, Amazon. We're a big partner of theirs. And uh, now we're even maturing the platform that we started building six years ago to heavily leverage microservices and, and are building our own cloud native apps. So we kind of, we went from really not being on the, the, the digital path at all to, uh, in my opinion, I think we're really uh, way out in front of a lot of our competitors right now. I have a few things I want to ask based on that history, which was awesome. Um, I guess first questions, like if you're going out and trying to start a new insurance company, like how do you even get started? Because I feel like part of it, you know, sounds kind of crazy for me to be able to go out and, um, you know, say you can raise the capital, but just to even get clients to even know about you or want to onboard with you, like, what's that process like? Uh, that was wild. Uh, and, and, you know, the, there was so many elements of the business plan that, you know, remarkably were like spot on, you know, we, uh, I, I, I was fairly confident we could, you know, build everything and get it launched for that first, uh, 17 million. And I think we did it for 15 million, but the real, question it was you know <laughs> to your point you know how, how are you going to get people to come to you um we we were relying on some of the research that we had done in terms of response rates to email but i will tell you uh i think you know this was this was uh late 2013 early 2014 the world changed a lot um to give you an example, you know, in the Geico days back before internet, you had kind of a one, one and a half percent response rate to a direct mail campaign. And as we were talking to a lot of uh, digital marketers back in, you know, 2013, 2014, they were saying, you know, you're not going to get that. You might get, you know, three quarters of a percent. Um, I mean, we would send out a, a half a million emails and get two responses. So it was, it was abysmal. That, that, that plan had to go out the window pretty quickly. <laughs> so I think we figured out before a lot of people that email is not the best way to get people's attention. Um, what we really worked on was getting, uh, you know, for the customers that we were selling, uh, you know, we found that um, yeah, an interesting dynamic with commercial insurance is, you know, other than Hiscox at the time, I think there's a bunch of more direct to cons- uh, business owner companies now, but at the time, Hiscox and us were really the only two. And we had built a really, really efficient sales platform. And so one of the things that we found was we were selling a ton of business on the weekend when a lot of the insurance agencies that would normally service those, those customers were not open. Uh, so uh, we find kind of found this niche initially around weekends and after hours. Um, it was it was kind of depressing when we first went live because we were all excited, you know, we were going to start selling policies, and it took like you know eight, six hours to sell the first policy. I got so frustrated. I went on Amazon and I bought this brass bell. We were in a an old warehouse that had these like two foot wide old. Uh, 
big beams and I, I, I screwed it into the beam. So we would ring a bell whenever we had a sale. There wasn't a whole lot of bell ringing that first day, but uh, what we found was a lot of uh, word of mouth, uh, which isn't probably too surprising when you think about it. Um, entrepreneurs tend to move in the same circles and, hey, I need an accountant. You know, I need a lawyer. You know, what did you do for insurance? And so we got a lot of that. And the, <clears throat> the platform that we built was very personalized. So if you said you were a plumber, the imagery and the, the text was uh, relevant to uh, that industry, same thing if you know, had a coffee shop. So that got a lot of accolades and, and we got a lot of uh, 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 rating, high ratings. And so we learned, you know, the whole process to get, you know, the official, you know, five-star rating and how many comments you had to have before it would get certified and all that jazz. Uh, but once we got to that point, things really took off. You know, our organic search really started climbing pretty rapidly. And uh, because the platform was so attractive and had those uh, uh, ability to really white label or personalize, we were actually really far down the path with getting uh, to be the primary uh, recommended carrier for uh, uh, Costco's business insurance. Um, <laughs> that, that would have changed the world for us anyway. Uh, but we were, we were it, it took, you know, it, it didn't go on the, pl the slope that I had planned uh, growth wise, but, um, once we kind of got the flywheel going, it really became, uh, a very, uh, a nice pattern to watch growth wise. And interestingly, even though, you know, we weren't paying commissions and we're not, we were a direct, uh, uh, player. I had a lot of conversations with agents that would tell me, you know, can you just, uh, can you write this account for me? You know, and, and I won't, I don't even want commission. It's just your system is so easy to use. I only want you to agree, you know, and I'll do on a gentleman's agreement, you know, that if this, this account that I'm giving you, if it becomes a bigger business that I own that customer relationship and I can, I can take it back. And I said, absolutely. That's fine by me. Uh, so I had a lot of age, actually a whole bunch of uh, independent agents bought their insurance <laughs> through us uh, ironically. So um, do, do you like stem that back to just being personalized in a world where everyone was kind of just doing the same thing? Like you mentioned, you built this platform that made it so people felt like you were talking to them directly based on the industry that they're in. If you're a plumber versus. An I agent. think that was an element. I also think that we, it, this, when we, we hit the schedule, like I said earlier on the build, but one of the, uh, blockers that we had, uh, I was kind of a maniac around, you know, what the screen looks and feels and sales flow was. And I just couldn't get the, the development and the business team to, to, you know, and it was just my fault. I, I couldn't really articulate what I was wanting. Um, and and th there was a moment in the summer of, uh, of 2012 when we were still doing the build uh, where, you know, I got frustrated. We had a bunch of people in the room in a design studio in Fremont, Seattle. And I, I just said, listen, guys, this is what I'm I want you to imagine that you're an insurance agent and you're, you're sitting in a diner with your best friend and you're trying to coach them on, you know, how do you get, you know, quickly to the, the, the actual insurance needs that your best friend needs so that you can leave the diner and go play golf. That's what I'm trying to get you guys to think about. Put yourself in the seat of that agent. And, and, and how will you give that, you know, quickly 
uh, ask the questions that you need to ask to make sure your friend is fully covered. And you know, one of the interesting things that that kind of broke loose was, well, you know, I don't need to ask a lot of these questions because my friend's not an insurance expert, you know, and in the bot product is a, is a small commercial package and it covers certain things, but there are, I don't know, 70, a hundred uh, endorsement forms and in, in ISO that you can uh, add or, you know, to that, that policy to tailor it, to make it more specific to the business. You know, there's a form for landscapers. If you're so serving alcohol, there's a, you know, separate uh, endorsement. So, uh, what we did was uh, part of that user experience was really to simplify, you know, instead of asking a thousand questions, we would we would have a package of what we recommended. Like that's what your insurance agent would do, you know, and we, we were agents. So that's what that was our job uh, to recommend to the client. You know, this is what you need for your business. You don't have to buy these things. And we would put how much they all cost. But I mean, it was ninety nine plus percent people took whatever we recommended. And it wasn't like an upsell thing. It was what we actually thought that they needed to protect their business. Uh, we wanted to make sure they were covered for the risks, you know, that were relevant to, to whatever that business was. Um, so the, the the answer to your question is, you know, the sales flow um, plus that personalization and the, e the ease of which we did that kind of, you know, four quick steps, um, I think was a big, big differentiator. And, and we bought the, uh, the data brick from Dun and Bradstreet. So uh, that we refreshed, I think monthly or quarterly. And so when you put in your business name, it would be there, you know? And so we, we ran a lot of data calls behind the scenes that people enjoyed, you know, they just the less data that they need to, to input and to, to, to get the quote. So we were very quick to get to the quote and really were more uh, trying to, uh, have the experience be around making sure their insurance and their risk needs were being met uh, for the price they wanted to pay, you know, for different deductibles or whatever else. Um, so th that that's what we really focused on. And I think was a big differentiator for us. Awesome. Um, yeah, I remember in our last conversation, you, I think at the end of the call, you name dropped one of your professors at the university of Washington, Ali Tarhouni. And you quoted, like, as an entrepreneur, your main goal is to find a problem that someone's willing to pay money to solve. And obviously that sounds obvious when you hear it out loud, but I'm curious <laughs> to get, I'm curious to get your take from your own experience with what your team built out, but even just more generally in working with other early stage companies, like what that means to you and why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, the, the way Ali uh, uh, framed it was, you know, find an unmet need in the marketplace, you know, which there are a myriad of, of examples. I'll come back to that. Uh, but the real trick was, you know, finding, finding, you know, something that somebody's willing to pay for. And that, that's the part that always uh, was, was interesting to me. Uh, we, as our uh, capstone project in business school, we built a, a uh, we call it. We actually got patented. It was a product called uh, the Baby Easy Rider, that was just a platform. You know, we were all were young parents at the time, and and, and we were all telling stories about how to you know uh, put a, a baby that was crying to sleep, and you know people would say, oh, I have the little uh, infant car carrier, and I put it on the dryer, or the washing machine, or you know, people I, I drive them around the neighborhood, and that kind of was the well. That's all those seem dangerous. Is there a better way? Um, 
so we built this product. We recorded a, I think a B12 Corvette engine and put a speaker in it. And then the whole thing would rumble uh, and vibrate. And, and we actually field tested it with some of our babies and it works. Um, but the, the point of that was we went to a juvenile product show in, in Orlando to see if we could find uh, sales. And it was, we were, it was our first show and they had a dinner the first night with uh, all of the first time entrepreneurs. And, and there was, 80 people in this room and they, every person got up and said, here's my product and here was my inspiration for it. And, and that always struck me with just how many great ideas that you had never thought of that are out there. Um, but then there was that second half of the more important half of that equation, you know, uh, who's going to pay for it, you know, and, and you never know, just never know what's going to resonate with people. Uh, you know, for us uh, with, with my startup, uh, it was a little more, uh, you know, it, it, if you are a business owner and want to go into a mall and have a kiosk, they don't let you walk through the door unless you have a certificate of insurance. So there was a demand side of that that, you know, was out there for us. And we happened to have a, a product offering that was filling a gap in the marketplace when people couldn't find insurance. I'm sure they, you know, asked friends and they said, call this number and no one was there. And then they went online. You know, if someone had picked up the phone, they would have never found us, you know, and, and that's part of why our organic search was, was growing so rapidly. What do you feel like is the most common, I think, challenge that most entrepreneurs or founders have when, to your example, as part of your capstone project, obviously you have this problem. You have this need of putting this baby to sleep because they just keep crying or whatever yeah. the example is like what. But the reality of it is, is that there's actually no one lining up at the door wanting to buy. Like, what do you think is the challenge that most founders have or some founders have and not being able to come to grips with that? It's a really interesting and, and I think really tough question um, because it really depends on the product or offering. Yeah, I have, I have some folks that are asking me about uh, software, a software product that they built and, and how to you know, get traction. And like, you know, in, in my currency, I get a lot of people calling me all day, every day, LinkedIn, you know, uh, let me give me 10 minutes to tell you about whatever. And um, it's just really hard to get traction and, and, you know, software sales, even for a mature product, let alone, you know, a, a startup. So it's, uh, it really depends on, uh, on, on the product is, is I think, the challenge to answer that question. But you know, one of the interesting things, you know, for the two years we were in business school, probably five or six different times during our lunch, a panel of uh, two to five entrepreneurs from Seattle would come in and just talk to us a little about themselves and, you know, answer questions. And it was shocking or, or interesting to me how there was a pattern that, 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 you know, I, I started to dial into and it was something like, you know, my name is Karen Smith. I'm currently the CEO and founder of XYZ company. Uh, it's my third company. My first company was, boy, did it go off the rails, you know, and, and it was, you know, bad timing, uh, bad management, bad investor, you know, uh, you know, uh, there was always some story around the first one didn't work. Uh, and then they'd say, my second company is really doing pretty good. Uh, I'm still the chair. I hired a CEO to run that. Uh, but my real passion is my third one, you know, and 
uh, it was it was just so interesting to me how many times you know people said that same thing they're all on their third one and i think there's a lot to truth to that term you know serial entrepreneur um and you know at the time i was uh, you know getting a corporate paycheck and and i was just like you know, little kids and worried about college and mortgages and I was like, man, these guys must have cast iron stomachs to just be willing to, you know, roll the dice on all these things. But, um, you know, that, you know, I don't know what the failure rate on restaurants, you know, you hear numbers like 50%, but people keep trying and, you know, there's a lot of restaurants still and they're still serving food. So, you know, people figure it out, you know, and that's the you know, thing, the fun part about, uh, you know, uh, this country really i mean there's just so many people that are willing to take a risk and, and be their own boss and and if it doesn't work out kind of pick yourself back up dust yourself off and try something new you know yeah it's definitely like that resilience of just not stopping even to the point at which they realize you go to those conferences you've picked up the phone a thousand times nobody wants to take your call they like Maybe it's time to stop doing what I'm doing, but maybe there's something else that I could be working on and actually find that unmet need that actually has a bit more of a chance to get to product market fit. Yeah. Um, you mentioned briefly as you were answering that question around, you know, as a CIO now, you're you're getting just like you got my email months ago from a lot of different software founders that are wanting to get input or feedback or wanting to sell you something or try to get early access partners. The list is endless these days, I feel yeah. like, but how do you like decide when you want to actually participate in those types of things versus not? Cause I know a lot of friends of mine who are also starting software companies, you know, they're, they're always asking this question to me around like, how do you get in front of CIOs? How do you get, how do you actually get them to want to take your call? I'm curious. I don't think I asked you that question. When we met the first time, but like, I'm curious, like why you choose to do that? Cause there's definitely a percentage of people. It's probably not as bad as it is when you talked about response rates from uh, going direct to consumer with 0.75% or whatever it is. But I, I'd be curious, like what, what stands out about you and wanting to take those calls, but also like what stands out from founders or early stage companies um, to be interested enough to take those calls. So kind of two different ways of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, with respect to talking to uh, startups, I do a lot of mentoring for insure tech entrepreneurs. And um, I, I enjoy hearing about new ideas. And I like to, to the extent that I have anything to add to the conversation uh, try to, you know, help people in their journey. I'd, I'd love to see other people be successful. So, uh, that's part of why I take the calls. Uh, I don't take most software, you know, uh, sales calls, um, for two reasons. One, um, I'm not really the most honestly qualified person to evaluate most of those products. You know, the, if it's a business idea, I really need our business teams to be the champion of those architecturally within our environments, we've created a, an architecture that's flexible enough that we can plug a lot of stuff in very easily uh, and, and do proof of concepts. So it's not a big cost item for us, which is I think an inhibitor in a lot of companies. Uh, the bigger issue, and this this definitely is something that I you know want to bless before we do anything is, is just cyber. You know, I find a lot of Younger companies haven't done the due diligence to make sure their product is secure enough. It's kind of a, 
you know, you either really, you know, understand and, and, and believe in, in, in cybersecurity and build it in from the beginning, or, or alternatively, I see it as an afterthought. And when it's that latter category, uh, it usually doesn't get uh, a proof of concept with us. It's just too risky, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about, uh, in our world, you know, a lot of potential risks to, to medical files or uh, personally identifiable information. So, um, yeah, you know, we, um, we're building a lot of our own stuff now. So uh, we've kind of gone from package software products, solving specific problems that, you know, usually you have to, you know, they get you 80% of the way there, but to have it really be an effective tool, you've got to modify it. Uh, so now we've kind of pivoted away from that and, and are building our own applications that are very directed at the specific problems that we have. On that note, like, I'm curious, like, what, um, what about your company's, like, architecture has led you to a path where you actually want to start building a lot of these things on platforms like AWS? Like, is there a specific um, challenge as it relates to insurance specifically that requires a lot of these like internal tools to be built and not just buying things off the shelf? Um, um, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Yeah. So in, in our world, there's um, you either build it yourself and there's companies that do certainly do that. Uh, or you acquire software for like your uh, your your core systems, your your policy administration, billing, and claims handling. So we are we are in that category. We acquire a product, but that product does not have uh, a great A architecture or B uh, user experience. And uh, I'll, you know I won't say the name of the company, but uh, we do a lot of uh, traveling pre-COVID and meet face-to-face with a lot of our independent agents around the country. And um, I had, I had gone through, you know, my kind of 15 minutes of, you know, what's coming up from, from my shop in the next year. And during the Q and a section, one of the agents said, I thought you guys use company X for your, your billing and policy. And I said, yes, that's accurate. And they go, no, you don't because I won't say the name, but one of my competitors also uses company X. And um, <laughs> he said, their sales experience is terrible and yours is awesome. Um, so you can't be using the same product. I said, well, we actually are, but we don't use their screens. We built our own on top of that core application because we want you guys to have very, very similar to the sales experience I mentioned with my, my startup. Um you know, let you do what you do well, you know, and build rapport with your clients uh, and not have it be, you know, you know, banging on keys, and, you know, gaining 15 minutes of, of data entry. You know, that's not fun for anybody, uh, including if you have to have somebody spell out a 16 digit VIN number. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that, that's the, you know, the, the core of it. There's there's not a software product that does things the way that we want them done is the easy answer. And, you know, uh, you know, I think they would like to be that partner and obviously get more money from you. They're just not. Uh, and, and honestly, in our world, there is, there's mainly three main companies that have product breadth, you know, for a company like us that has those, those 14 different statutory lines of business. Um, and there's always people that are trying to get into that space for sure. Uh, but, um, you know, for us, there's just not a, a solution that 
And, and even what we've built isn't where I want it, to be honest, right? Um, uh, <laughs> Probably the right mentality, though. It's never done. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, but the, you know, like the personalization and the white labeling, you know, what I want to be able to do is have an agent, you know, that it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, like I said, I went to Safeco almost uh, 20 years ago. Um, well, actually it was the 17th. Yeah, today, 20 years exactly. Uh, I learned a lot about the independent agents and, and, and talking to a lot of customers. And it was interesting education, you know, having come from Geico, where you, you would actually physically talk to your customers directly. A lot of the insurance customers in the independent agent world think the agent is the company. You know, and so, uh, and and <laughs> funny side story. Uh, I was having a conversation with some agents in California, and and I was uh, challenging them on why our retention safe goes at the time with that agency was so poor. And and we went back and forth. You know, well they they're like, my retention is great. And I'm like, I'm looking at the number; it's terrible. You know, it's one of those. And then and then we kind of all had this ah Bach moment uh, when <laughs> we realized. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and then the agent said it right as I was getting finally cluing in. He's like, Greg, you don't understand something. That that's your attention with with your company. I don't lose customers. I, I the only time I lose a customer is if they die. I take them from you, but they go to another carrier, but I don't lose them, you know. And and so that was a, an interesting experience. And when and when I say we're not where I want us to be, that's that's an example. Like I want you know, to have our platform be so flexible that if the agent wants to, you know, uh, have imagery of their sales staff or their office storefront or whatever, that they can they can tailor our product that that discreetly and bring that same kind of mindset, that same kind of personalization that we had at my startup. Uh, and again, it's it's the same overall philosophical approach. Agents have choices. So they've got a lot of carriers that they can place business with. And I want them to choose us more than my competitors. And, and that personalization to me is one step on that path. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between Shopify and Amazon to some extent or another. Yeah, like how do yeah. you provide these agents to kind of have their own uh, experience that they want to deliver to their customers versus just offering the same generic experience to everyone? And, and, and yeah. do it in a way that's not cost prohibitive. You know, you could hire a thousand IT people and host it for them. But that that doesn't make sense, you know. It's not the Amazon way of doing it, you know. That's not yeah. the way I would. Um, yeah, you bring up this is a a friend of mine is actually starting a company called Canopy Connect in the insurance space, mostly just to be able to pull deck pages from agents' clients really quickly. It's kind of similar to if you ever used Plaid, where you can insert all your banking information just by punching in your bank username and password, and all of a sudden now. Plot will take all your financial information and put it into a separate program. They're doing that for collecting deck pages from consumers, um, which I feel like goes back to this whole personalization thing of like why that's so important. Now you can not only have to like not ask all those questions to get them to read off your VIN number, like you said, but now can just focus on like that specific personalized experience that you're wanting to give to not just the uh independent agents, but to their customers as well. Yeah, we're doing some of that in the commercial space, you know, uh, OCR on an Accord app or whatever that prefills a lot of the information and kind of gives you a, 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 uh, 
a quick quote on the same coverages, but this is this is the point I was making earlier. You know, with you know, you're sitting across the table from your best friend. The important part of that conversation with the client isn't all the perfunctory stuff. It is understanding their business or understanding their personal life, depending on whatever product that you're selling, so that you make sure that they are covered for the risks that they are worried about, and that you know you you impart some level of knowledge. There's a reason why. Uh, in the face of billions of dollars of advertising every year, and it probably 3x that in IT spend, where why uh, the direct channel hasn't taken over the world. Uh, in personal auto, you know, certainly uh, Geico, USAA, Progressive uh, have, have done well in the direct world, uh, but it hasn't like taken you know too much market share in, in the homeowners. When and there's a lot of people that have tried. Uh, and it's taken almost no uh, market share in the, the commercial side. I think that will change, uh, particularly if carriers don't get better at you know the things that we've been talking about. Um, you know, there is an unmet need for sure. If, if you're a business owner uh, and want you know get good insurance advice quickly and personalized and get on with running your business, uh, there's not a lot of outlets for that right now. Um, last question I'll ask you, and then we can see where we want to take it from there, just end the the call is, you know, you've obviously talked a lot about, or at least briefly mentioned it and, and talked about it more in our conversation that we had a couple of months back in terms of how your team is leveraging AWS, starting to build more specific experiences for your customers, like you've been talking about here. Um, I'm curious, like what's most exciting to you and your team these days from like a technology perspective that goes back into like, how do you provide a really good experience for your independent agents that you're selling to? Yeah. Um, like that you're really excited about that you feel is we're just at like the cusp of actually adopting it and starting to see the full impact of it as a result. Yeah, I'd say we're past the cusp, but the, the answer is, uh, you know, I, I was talking about these experiences and, and building our own. Uh, we went through kind of two iterations of building our own before what, you know, we had this, uh, experience working with the, the Amazon Digital Innovation Workshop, where they kind of taught us how Amazon does what they do, how they work backwards, how they have their two pizza teams and, and, and how they get to a minimum lovable product, you know, quickly. Uh, so that philosophical approach, we, we got some training on and, and implemented with our first product team about a year and a half ago. I mean, literally a month before COVID hit, uh, we were in a room and then it went, you know, went remote. Um, but actually right around now, last year, we pushed the button on that first application, which was our first cloud native app, heavily utilizing microservices uh, around the, the, the servicing question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a agent and I want to quickly be able to service my account uh, or my, my, uh, my, uh, my client's accounts and be able to really put your seat again in our customer here, the, the insurance agent, and, and try to build an application that meets their needs. And, and so that there was a technology component of it that was, as I said, heavily leveraging microservices. We also uh, had three years ago uh, moved away from our data warehouse and built a really robust data lake. So a lot of uh, uh, real-time data services were part of that package when we, when we made that transition. So having those microservices that are very uh, robust and reusable. Uh, so you know, we're actually in beta testing on our first mobile app that's leveraging a lot of that same those same services. 
Uh, and that was a very low cost build for us. So we had estimates of five or $6 million to build a mobile app uh, that we chose to kind of go our own way. Uh, but the, uh, the technology piece I've, I've already spoken to, the, the other piece of it was really getting to uh, away from a, I'll call it a monolithic application run department that we were before and getting to uh, a more focused product team structure. So there's four engineers that work on that service application that I just mentioned. Uh, they're led by a business owner who uh, in my portfolio, I have all of our, uh, our call centers and um, you know Rachel is the business owner on that and and she works her list of pain points you know based on what she's hearing from agents and they're now in a full CI CD pipeline where they're releasing code all day every day uh, which was a, a major sea change for us you know when I got here six years ago we had I think quarterly software releases and I said no that's crazy we got to get to monthly and you know here we are you know six years later uh, you know, continuous code delivery. And, and I still think we got a lot of maturity, you know, to, to do better there. So um, that's been probably the most fun to see. It's, it's been less about the technology, all that enables a lot of things, but it's more about watching that team get excited about how quickly they can see a problem, identify it, you know, write up the fix and get that code delivered and, and into production. It's the real, it sounds like the real shift to, full service ownership from a, like an operational standpoint, which is, which makes a lot of sense. Like you can, I, I know there's a lot of enterprises that will say like their big shift is just adopting AWS, but that's likely to get you so far. If you're still going about the same practices you've always done. It, it, it's one thing to move your loads from on-prem to. to yeah. You've, you've done that's nothing fine. really. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, when you really, and my team, we're we're way out on the bleeding edge with Amazon now. We got a great partnership with them, and we we were so far, uh, you know, they they release things so fast. I mean, you know that that they don't actually have the training developed for some of the stuff that we've got introduced to and, and are implementing. And uh, that that whole point that you just hit the nail on the head. You know, we've democratized it to a point where the team feels the security and the ownership that they can push the envelope on trying new things and as, as new services and tools get delivered by Amazon or really, you know, any, any one of our partner companies that they, they, they know they've got the green light to try to make the world better. And, uh, you know, the, the, the speed at which people are learning and implementing is, is really impressive. Uh, we have a, a terrific internship program over the summer that we actually extend, you know, now to when people are back in school, which is an interesting development, you know, in the, the hybrid world. And, we built on that with an apprenticeship program with uh, our local community college here, Columbus State, where uh, two-year two-year associate degree students, after their first year, we're hiring them part-time to work for us, and they get trained up on this Amazon stack within a few weeks. And you know, they like they, you know these these are transitioning adults. You know, they're you know, one guy was a carpenter and said, "My knees can't take it anymore. I want to go into software development." Uh, you know, so there's all whole different perspectives and, and I mean, true diversity in its, its essence coming to us in this apprenticeship program. And, and the fun thing to me is just to see how quickly people are able to take the concept of, I, I, I would like to be a software developer to actually writing code and seeing that code move into production uh, and really getting excited about a career in technology. And, and that, 
is great. You know, uh, I, I, that's the thing that I'm really excited about. So, you know, there's, there's two halves to it. You know, one's the technology piece that I spoke to, but uh, really seeing these teams, you know, I like that, that I just mentioned, right? Four, four developers on that, uh, that new service asset. Uh, we had zero customer uh, self-service, you know, in state auto's history. And we took that same agent-facing application and, and made it a little more customer-friendly and, and now re released that to all of our customers. And uh, as a result, I mean, the punchline is, you know, are you actually getting anything for all these investments? Uh, we have year-over-year -year call reductions of about 35%. So people are using these assets and, that was, uh, you know, my my operating thesis was nobody wants to call anybody in 2020 or even 2015, right? I mean, something's broken if, if they got to pick up the phone. Uh, so I think we proved that out by putting a great web asset in front of them that uh, they can get the answers to their questions, which is most most people want to do. Uh, and it's actually not that hard. You know, just we hadn't uh, ever made the investment. And so to see those four engineers, we, you know, one of them is a senior engineer and uh, two of them were, you know, apprentices, you know, be able to build that asset to me was just fantastic. And, and we're now, we, I think we are up to 60 product teams and, and continuing to grow and mature those, that, but that's our oldest one <laughs> at a year and a half. And uh, as I said, they, you know, spun up another team to take all those same services that were built as part of that project and just consume them and turn it into a really good mobile app that, uh, uh, we, we were in alpha earlier in the summer and now we're in beta. And so we're about ready to push the button on that one here, probably another couple months. So I, I'll, I'll end on this note, which is, um, you know, I think historically over the course of the last seven, eight years now, I think organizations like Capital One have been put on a pedestal for financial services companies to look at and say, like, look at these guys. They've moved from however many data centers entirely to AWS. They made this transition. You don't, maybe I've not been paying attention to it, but I feel like you don't hear that story as much in the insurance landscape. I'm curious <laughs> as a, as a CIO, if I'm listening to this and I'm in an insurance company or in one of those regulated industries, and I'm trying to make the case for like making this type of big transition, like where do you think they need to start or do they need to like, what's the pitch to their CEO or to the board to actually invest and make these types of changes that need to happen? Um, yeah, I was blessed in that the company was in kind of rough shape, so I didn't have to have the conversations that uh, I'll say a normal CIO would have to have. Uh, and, and, and a couple of my board members actually were not a fan of, of us having built uh, six or six years or so before my tenure started a data center. And so I didn't really need to convince them, you know, that, that um, you know, it wasn't the best thing for us, but, it, you know, I, projecting myself into a normal CIO's role and having to have that conversation. Uh, I got a lot of good friends and competitors in, in, in the city and they, they've actually had to go through some of those. Um, you know, it's hard if you, if you put, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into, you know, level five, whatever data centers, um, you know, you can't just, you know, walk away from that. So, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, into a hybrid world, you know, no matter how you want to look at it, but, to me, so you said it's harder to make the, the cost because you already sunk the cost, you know, debate. So the debate to me really is about what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, do you, do you want to you want to be the same kind of IT shop that takes, you know, maybe monthly releases and, 
you know, incremental improvements to your products? Or do you want to be a high velocity, very dynamic shop that can uh, really move the needle for however you define your customer? And, you know, and in my case, it's, it's independent agents um, and ultimately their customers, because if their customers are happy, then, you know, everybody's happy. Um, you know, and that's, that, that's really it, you know? And, and so you, you, you probably read, you know, a lot about how COVID, you know, uh, forced a lot of more money getting spent in IT, you know, for digital transformation. Um, there's so many different flavors of what that means in the world that it's hard <laughs> to, to, you know, chat about it. But, you know, the, the core of it to me is, uh, are, are you, or at, at your core as not just a CIO, but at your leadership team, uh, in agreement and in alignment that you need to change. And, and if, if, if you do, you know, if your answer to that is we're not happy with where we are, and we, we want to get better. We want to be different to me. Then you, then you're starting a conversation on how, not if you're going to move to a cloud offering. And in our case, I had used Amazon at my startup. Uh, I, I, I'm biased. I think they're better than the other, you know, two, two big ones out there. Um, but I, I, you know, candidly have no experience with, uh, Azure and, and we did some work with Google cloud and I'm a big fan of the company. We're G suite shop. We don't use the, the Microsoft office suite. Um, and I think Google will figure it out, you know, eventually they got plenty of money to, you know, to spend experimenting. But, uh, the thing that, uh, I like most about Amazon is they really are very attuned to what their customers need in our case, you know, and. Uh, they didn't charge me for that whole di digital innovation workshop. They just said, you guys, you know, would you like to learn how to do things differently? And we're, we're kind of a culture that says yes to that question all the time. Uh, and, and we experimented with it. You know, if it didn't work, that, that would have been fine, too. We would have you know, done, gone and done something else. But it really worked well. And, uh, you know, and uh, the rest is kind of playing out as history right now. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Greg. This has been a great opportunity to, to talk about some of these other topics that we never had a chance to cover when we first had a chance to meet. So this was um, well worth it, in my opinion, and I hope uh, whoever's listening will get something out of it as well. My pleasure. It's always, always, always fun to talk with you guys. Thanks. Thanks to Greg for the conversation, and thanks to Tom Tierney for the music. We'll see you again in two weeks.